Our scripture reading this morning from Matthew chapter 25. We'll read verses 14 through 23. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You've probably noticed we stopped reading that parable about halfway through. We're going to continue to read the rest of it and then also explore what this might teach us or some of the things this might teach us. I want to begin, though, by reading through a portion of the prayer we prayed together a few minutes ago as a part of our prayer response time. If you've been to our midweek prayer service, or if you frequent that service, you'll be very familiar with that prayer of thanksgiving. We pray it together every week. And I think it's not only an appropriate way for us to prepare our hearts for the next week as we enter into and move toward Thanksgiving Day culturally, but I think, and maybe more importantly for our purposes today, I think it might also help set the stage for the conversation I want to have from Matthew 25, this parable that we've just read. The, the prayer that we said together begins like this, Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessing of this life but above all for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us such an awareness of your mercies. We'll stop there, but this is a prayer that in part takes our minds or can take our minds to the incredible goodness and abundance of our God. And that's what I want to encourage you to think about today, the incredible goodness and abundance of our God. In many ways, we need look no further than the natural world all around us to see God's abundant goodness affirmed time and time again, at least in some ways. And I understand that there are limitations to certain resources, and animal species can go extinct, and the coffee crafts in the lobby are empty at this point in the day. So, and not that those two things are equal in severity or importance, but you get the point. Not everything is limitless. And yet, if we 
can open our eyes, I think we begin to see the abundance of God displayed in creation day after day. At this time of year, I'm always struck by this sort of natural extravagance as our yard becomes a 12-inch thick blanket of golden leaves. That is a bit of an exaggeration, but only by maybe an inch or two. Um, If you've spent time raking leaves over the past month, you can probably sympathize with that overwhelming feeling. Where in the world do all of these leaves come from? And then the discouraging part is thinking ahead to next year, they're all going to be back, wreaking havoc once again. It truly is extravagant. We, we see that sort of extravagance all over. I, I think my most memorable encounter with that sort of natural extravagance was while working in Alaska. I think I've shared this experience before. Um, it, it wasn't just the expansive, awe-inspiring mountain landscapes which were truly incredible. It's what Robert Service in his poem, The Spell of the Yukon, described like this. There's a land where the mountains are nameless. The landscapes there truly are expansive and unfathomable. But I was also fortunate enough, and I only had this opportunity once, but I made it up one time to the north slope of Alaska, hundreds of miles away from any significant population center, Hundreds of miles of just nothingness. We drove into the Arctic Circle, through the Brooks Mountain Range, and back out again into that vast expanse of nothingness. Completely flat tundra, stretching for miles and miles in all directions. The highway running alongside the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. All you could see for hundreds of miles was the highway, gravel highway, mind you, the highway in front of you, and an oil pipeline off to the side, until out of nowhere I spotted a caribou, and then two, and then there was a group of five and ten. I I was so excited that I started counting them. I I had seen a caribou or two time uh, often enough, but never twenty in one spot, and I soon realized that this was just the tip of the iceberg because we were beginning to drive through the great caribou migration, thousands of caribou on both sides of the highway as far as the eye could see. One of the most remarkable experiences of my life. And when I think about natural extravagance, abundance, that is where my mind typically goes. How about you? What what do you think of when you think of God's abundant goodness. We started reading this parable of the talents, and there are a variety of ways to read this parable. Um, A variety of things I think we can draw from, interesting conversations to have. But one thing I think Matthew contrasts for us in this parable is the idea of scarcity versus abundance. A moment ago, as we read, we met the first two servants in the story Jesus tells, who it seems on some level lived with a recognition of the abundance of the master. The first one is given five talents. Remember, we considered this earlier this fall in another parable. Talents was was a monetary designation. It wasn't a skill or a talent in that sense, and it was roughly the equivalent of 20 years of a day laborer's wages. So the first servant in the story receives five talents. 
That's fairly simple math, even for somebody like me. We can do that. That's 100 years of a day laborer's wages. That's a significant amount of wealth. The next servant receives two talents, less but still significant. Both of them, we are told, put their share of the resources to use and double what belonged to the master. The third servant, of course, as we're going to read about, decides instead to bury the one talent he received. Now, I'll I'll be honest, as a pretty risk-averse individual myself, this parable hits a bit too close to home. I understand the impulse to do just that. Just bury it. I don't want this responsibility. The thinking, as wrongheaded as it may be, is, well, at least you won't lose it. The question I want us to consider is what might a tendency like that reveal about our view of God and our view of the world we inhabit? Because I think, as I read this parable from Jesus, that more than speaking to something like the wisdom of proper investing and Rather than focusing strictly on our human economies and maybe our willingness or lack thereof to assume risk in order to grow wealth, I don't think this parable is about financial wisdom um, or proper investing that enables us to do something as arbitrary as live our best life now. I think this parable has much more to do with how we view God. Because as we continue reading, we, uh, where we left off in our scripture reading, Jesus now provides the third servant's rationale, explanation for why he chose the path he chose. Verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. It's Not a great start to the conversation. Reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, as I mentioned, there are a variety of ways to read, understand this parable. We're actually going to continue exploring some of these potential meanings next week as we look at another parable. There are several, a series of parables in Matthew 25 that are all interconnected and pointing us to similar conversations. So we'll continue that next week. But again, one possible way of reading this, we, we see the third servant here who receives something from the master but sees it as a huge liability primarily because he doesn't trust the one who has given the gift. He's terrified. I don't really want this responsibility that comes along with stewarding this huge sum of money because what if things go badly? 
sort of the, the classic pessimist, maybe. His, his assumption seems to be, I've received a gift, but it's probably going to be lost. It's either going to be lost or used up really quickly, but if either of those things happen, the master is not going to be happy. So if instead I just bury it, at least the master will maintain his possession. Sure, inflation may eat away at some of the value, but more or less, he's going to have what he started with, and maybe then I won't suffer his wrath for losing what he gave me or not using it rightly. The thinking might be, well, I am somehow responsible for securing and maintaining control of what actually belongs to the master, what is not mine to control or maintain in the first place. Well, there are obviously some really other, uh, other really important conversations we could have about this parable. Today, I want to focus on this. What if the third servant is functioning for us as an image of um, what happens when we work from that place of scarcity, where there isn't enough to go around, and so I have received a gift or a blessing, been put in charge in the story of this sum of money, but because I am convinced that the master is a harsh man and the master's resources are limited and dependent on me to secure and control, as a result, I have to cling to this gift. What if the third servant here is turning a gift into a limited resource and thus destroying the purpose of the gift in the first place. The purpose of any blessing, any gift we receive, is that we might hold it with an open hand and an outstretched arm to be a blessing to others. I think we even see this in the calling of Israel, that the chosen people, the people through whom the Messiah would come, the people working towards an inheritance. But the point of all of that gift and all of that blessing was that they might then in turn be a blessing to the rest of the world. It was never about clinging to the gift. But when we function from a place of scarcity, we always have this tendency to turn gifts into possessions that we must cling to and protect. And when we do that, they're no longer useful for us or for anybody. And it seems to me, upon first reading at least, that one of the major differences in this story is in the responses of these servants has to do with how they understand the nature and character of their master. We're not told exactly what is going on in the minds of the first two servants, but you could imagine perhaps a response where they are receiving those gifts, being entrusted with those gifts, and they receive it with joy. Just think, our master has entrusted us with these incredible gifts. We know we haven't done anything to deserve or earn the gifts. What an incredible development. So let's be diligent. Let's Use, let's offer the gifts with open hands. Let's live in light of what we know to be true about the one who is given the gift. The third servant, in stark contrast, has serious doubts about the good character of the one giving the gifts. 
which then taints his understanding of the gift. Verse 24, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. You can't be trusted. So just, I, I want to wash my hands of this. Take back what is yours. There, there's no responsibility, even no recognition that this might be a gift that is an avenue to joy. Perhaps this is only indirectly related to the parable, I don't know, but, but I think it's worth thinking about. One of the incredible joys of the Christian life is discovering the unique gifts that we have been blessed with and finding how we might utilize those gifts and employ them in service to the kingdom of God for God's glory. But so often, our first impulse might be, well, no, what, what's mine is mine. This has been gifted for my benefit alone, so I'm going to keep this for myself. And even if I don't develop it or grow it, and even if it's only used on me, that's fine. I think this can be a great challenge for many 21st century Westerners who often function from a place of scarcity. And I am such a 21st century Westerner where life is understood as a zero-sum game. So if my possessions increase, then somebody else's must decrease. There's sort of that direct one-to-one correlation. Or if my joy increases, that must negatively impact somebody else's joy. Or if somebody experiences something positive in their lives, somehow that has a negative impact on me, so I can't rejoice with those who rejoice. I think it's possible that one of, this, one of the things that this parable could lead us to is a place where we are resisting that view of the world we live in, rejecting that mindset of scarcity and once again entering into the abundant goodness of our God. We worship and serve a God who gives generously, extravagantly, abundantly, not because we have earned or deserved. And we see that most notably in the gift of God's self to us. So this is what I want us to consider today. How do we enter into God's abundance in a practical way? How can we be formed in such a way that we might resist mindsets of scarcity? If this is a challenge for many, how can we resist that? I want to offer a simple suggestion. It's not a groundbreaking suggestion at all. It's probably the most obvious one. And we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're going to read this psalm next week as our call to worship for Christ the King Sunday. We'll return to it there. But Psalm 95 begins with these words. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. 
God's abundance is on full display there in that psalm. And I wonder if that simple practice of declaring God's goodness expressed to us, making a joyful noise to our God, reflecting on the abundant goodness of God, I wonder if that might be an antidote to much of the despair we feel, an antidote to the scarcity mindset that we are tempted to lean into, the antidote to the dread we feel at having to control our lives. Our psalm for today from... Psalm 90, our call to worship, expressed something similar. The, the request was this, satisfy us, God, in the morning with your goodness, or with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all of our days. It's a psalm that started with that declaration of faith. You have been our dwelling place. There's this call, this invitation, I think, to worship even in the midst of various worries, even in the midst of feelings of despair or in the midst of legitimate need because we trust in the steadfast goodness of our God. And as we worship, as we declare, as we sing, as we lift our voices with joy, as we cast our cares on the one who has cared for us, we are opened up again to the abundant goodness of God and that abundance that we are confronted with begins to reframe our deepest longings. As our hearts again focus on Jesus Christ, our great God, in whose hands are the depths of the sea. As we gaze towards Jesus, we are drawn out of fear, out of dread, and into gratitude because we recognize the limitless goodness of our God. Again, ultimately, that is seen in the gift of God's self, the gift of salvation that is freely offered to us. And I think ultimately this parable is inviting the reader, inviting you and I once again into a posture of trust. I don't think the, the goal in reading this parable is that we are challenged to utilize our wisdom or our effort or our flawless character as a means of reproducing what the master has already given us. It is not about us having our gifts doubled because we are good enough. I think instead this is an invitation into trusting relationship with our God. We trust not in ourselves. We trust not in our ability to do something good with what we have been given. We trust not in the gifts or in our wisdom. We trust in God alone. But the only way, in my view, the only way we will ever grow in trusting the character of our God is to know and commune with God. Such communion is the avenue of growing trust. I want to read a, a lengthy section from Robert Farrar Capon's treatment of this parable. Um, it, it's just so good. With all of these parables, he, he's so good. Uh, so I'm going, bear with me. I'm just going to read a lengthy portion. If you have access to the book, just read the whole book. He said this, speaking of the parable, 
sort of resisting the urge to think this is about us doing something good with what we have been gifted. He said, the grace of acceptance does its own work. All we have to do is trust it. it. The parable emphatically does not say that God is a bookkeeper looking for productive results. The only bookkeeper in the parable is the servant who decided he had to fear a non-existent audit and who therefore hid his one talent in the ground. He goes on, the goodness of his grace does all that needs doing. It is only the bookkeeping of unfaith that is condemned. The rest of the story is about the unaccountable, even irresponsible joy of the Lord who just wants everybody to be joyful with him. Thanks be to God. Enter into the joy of the master. We put our faith into action to receive with open hands the gifts of God that we can do nothing to earn. Our prayer today, again, I want to return where we started, declared, God, we give you thanks. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessing of this life, those physical, quantifiable gifts. Those are occasions for joy and gratitude, but that is just the beginning. As Christians, our gratitude rests in something much more consistent, much more eternal. God, we thank you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessing of this life. But above all, more than all of those good things, we thank you for the gift of yourself. We thank you for your immeasurable love and the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we are reminded that all we are left to do is receive. Receive the gifts that you have done nothing to earn. Receive the gifts that you can do nothing to deserve. Would you stand as we celebrate that reality around the table of our Lord? We come to this table with open hands to receive the gifts of God for the people of God. I want to say a prayer, and then we're going to make two lines down these center aisles. When you get to the front, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and receive these gifts. I want to say a prayer, and then I'll invite you to join me. Set us free, loving Father, from the bondage of our sins. And in your goodness and mercy, give us the liberty of that abundant life which you have made known to us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Would you join us at the table of our Lord today?